This morning, on this very last Sunday of 2018, I want to talk about what we're going to do at the end of the service when we come to that communion table. Uh, If you've been a Christian for a while, you've been around church for a while, you'll know that that this is just something that Christians do, right? Uh, we, We partake of the Lord's Supper. But maybe you haven't put a whole lot of thought into why we do that or, or what that is all about. Uh, what does communion, what does the Lord's Supper, or some people call it the Eucharist, what does that have to do with our lives outside of a 10-minute a, a little ceremony that we partake in once a month? Those are some of the questions that we're going to answer today. Uh, you know, within different denominations of, of the Christian faith, there's a lot of disagreements about how we're to understand the Lord's table. I'll give you a couple examples of what I mean here. Several years ago, I officiated a, a wedding for a young couple. It was an outdoor wedding. Uh, we were kind of under this little gazebo, and this young couple, in the middle of the ceremony, wanted to take communion. And so I had a, a little uh, loaf of bread up there. I had a little uh, glass of, of wine, and at the appropriate time in the ceremony, I, I uh, led them in partaking of those elements. Well, after the wedding was over, people were getting up and they were uh, leaving. They were starting to head to where the reception was taking place. And I had this glass of, of wine. They wanted to, to use wine. And so uh, much of it was left over. And as people were filing out, I was kind of taking care of the elements up there. And I took that glass of wine and I just kind of tossed it into the bushes. And I heard this audible gasp from behind me. And I turned around and here was this lady staring at me with absolute horror on her face. Turns out that she was Catholic. And of course, the Catholic view of communion is that uh, after that bread and wine has been consecrated, that it literally becomes the the body and the blood of Jesus. And so uh, none of it is to be wasted, not even a drop. And so for her to see me do that with the blood of Christ, that was was horrifying to her. Uh, In hindsight, I probably could have been a little bit more respectful for that with that. Uh, I'll give you another example, though, here. Um, I heard a story one time of a, of a megachurch that had thousands and thousands of members that tried a really innovative approach to the Lord's Supper. And what they did was uh, they decided to use some really unusual elements. And so they made up a, a big batch of Kool-Aid, and they brought in some really tasty crackers, and in the middle of the service, communion was served. And uh, there was a lady that was there for the very first time that day, and after the service, she went up to one of the pastors, and she shook his hand, and she said, hey, do you know what I like best about the service? I liked it when you stopped what you were doing in the middle, and we all had snacks. That was really cool. What are we to make of communion? What are we to think of that? Well, that's what we're going to investigate and talk about today. And I'll give you the, the big idea of this sermon right up front today. It's this, communion reminds us of and empowers us in the gospel. Communion reminds us of and empowers us in the gospel. Now we talk about the gospel every single week here. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus, that that Jesus lived for us, right? He lived the life that we should be living but aren't living. Uh, He died the sacrificial death that we deserve to die. He rose again for us. That's the good news of the Christian faith. And understanding that gospel is how a person becomes a Christian. Understanding the implications of that 
is, is how you grow in your relationship with the Lord. And so the gospel should be the most important thing for a believer in Jesus Christ. Communion reminds us of that gospel, and it empowers us in that gospel. If we receive these communion elements in faith, and that faith part is really important, then I believe that we can receive a, a fresh measure of God's grace. I believe that we can be empowered to live for God. And this is why the Lord's Supper is, is really only for Christians. Because it's a picture of the gospel that Christians have already accepted. It's not the gospel, but it represents the gospel. And so it only makes sense for those people who have turned to Christ in repentance and faith to partake of those elements. And so if, if you've never done that, then when we partake of these elements, we're going to ask you to hold off on taking those elements. What you need to do is you need to actually partake of Christ. You need to partake of what the bread and the cup represent. And you do that, and you can do that right now by turning from your sin and admitting to God that you haven't lived in a way that he would want, and then you trust and you believe that on the cross, Jesus' death was sufficient to forgive you of your sin. So let's explore communion a little bit more. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You know, it's been said that uh, the Lord's Supper actually started off with the Last Supper. So this Christian ordinance that we practice has a, a distinctly Jewish background. You know the story. Uh, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he and his disciples celebrated the Passover feast together. That was a, a meal that represents and symbolizes how God had delivered the Jewish people from bondage and slavery in Egypt. It's the story of how God passed over them and gave them salvation instead of judgment. Well, that feast and meal ultimately looked ahead to the salvation that Jesus Christ offers us. And this is what we remember and celebrate when we partake of these communion elements. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, this guy, Paul, we, we refer to him as an apostle. He was a, a leader in the early Christian church. He's writing a letter to a church in this city of Corinth, and he's instructing them about the Lord's table. They, they had abused the Lord's table. They were coming to the communion table in an inappropriate way. And so Paul takes some time here in his letter to instruct them about it. So I want to ask the question, what is the purpose of communion? Well, what do we do? What is the purpose of this table? And I think that there are three main purposes to it. The first is this, commemoration. We're to remember the Lord's death. Okay, Commemoration. We are to remember the Lord's death. Notice what Paul says here, chapter 11, verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So when Jesus says, Do this in remembrance of me, in a lot of ways, what he's doing is he's giving direction for his own funeral. And maybe that's something that you've done. Maybe you've thought ahead to your funeral and you've planned out some of the songs that you want sung, or maybe you want a particular person to say a few words. Jesus is very clear. He wants us to remember. But he doesn't want us to just remember that he was a good person and a good teacher. He wants us to remember, first and foremost, his death. Now, there's a lot of Christians 
that are all about remembering the process of Jesus' death. And he was beaten, and he was tortured, and it was so incredibly painful. And, and yes, that, that's good. We don't want to forget that. But I think that Jesus is more concerned about us remembering the, the purpose of his death than the process of his death. Why did Jesus die? It was to forgive us of our sins. And this is what communion reminds us of and demonstrates. The main purpose of the Lord's Supper is to serve as a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us. That's what those elements mean. Uh, the bread represents his body that was broken, that was torn apart for us. The cup represents his blood that was shed, that was spilled on our behalf. There's a lot of important things that we need to remember about Jesus. Really important things. We need to remember that he was born of a virgin. We, we just uh, celebrated that, focused on that at Christmas time. We need to remember that, that Jesus really is God. We need to remember that he uh, performed miracles, that he left us with this great body of teaching. But the fact that he died for us as an atonement for our sins, that is the most important thing. Friend, if, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, you haven't, you haven't stepped over that line of faith, I wonder if you understand how important the death of Jesus was. You know, the Bible says that we are sinners, and I get that in Almost 2019, that word sin or sinners may sound a little archaic, a little, little old school. Well, sin simply means to miss the mark, means to miss the target. And so God has said, listen, this is who I want you to be. This is how I want you to live. This is, this is uh, the way that you're supposed to be in this life. We've missed that. We've missed that target. We've done our own thing. We've been rebellious. We've been self-sufficient. We've, we've, we've lived in a way that we want to live. We are sinners, the Bible says. And the Bible goes on to say that there's nothing that we could ever do that would reconcile us and God. Because of our rebellion, because of our failure to be who God wants us to be, we're alienated from God. There's nothing on our own that we could do to end that conflict. That's where Jesus comes in. That's what the cross was all about. That Jesus died as, as a sacrifice for us. He, he died the death that we deserve to die. That's what we remember when we come to the communion table. You know, our country uh, is so not a perfect place. I think all of us would agree with that. But there's one thing that our country does really, really well that I don't see a lot of other countries doing as well as we do. And I say that as somebody who lived overseas for six years. Uh, we remember the men and women that have sacrificed for our freedom. We do that very well. Uh, Memorial Day, uh, 4th of July, we, we focus on that. That's a, that's a big deal. We, we remember those that have sacrificed for our physical freedom. And that's exactly what this communion table is all about. That's what it commemorates, the death of the one who sacrificed for our spiritual freedom. And we remember that, we commemorate that when we come to this table. The second purpose of communion is this, participation. We're to remember the Lord's people. There's a, there's a community affirming element to the Lord's table. So communion is about our vertical relationship with God, but it's also about our horizontal relationship with each other. When we celebrate communion, that's exactly what we're doing. We are communing. We are remembering that the gospel 
has unified us and made us into a spiritual family. We're remembering that we have been made one through Jesus Christ. You know, throughout this text here in 1 Corinthians 11, there's a Greek word that this passage was written in the Greek language. Uh, it's the word sooner komai. Sooner komai appears five different times in this passage. And it's where we get the word synergy or synchronize. And what does that mean? Well, it means that it, it, it brings things together, right? It, it unites things. And so the idea here is that communion connects things that would otherwise be broken and fragmented. Now, things in the communal aspect of this church in Corinth had gone very, very wrong. Notice what Paul continues to say. Look at uh, chapter 11, verse 17. He says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, and another person gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And then jump down to, to see what he says there in verse uh, 33. He says, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, <clears throat> you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Now, in this culture, when a Christian church would, would gather, probably in a home, to celebrate communion, they would actually share a meal together. They were called love feasts. And it was a feast, it was a meal to celebrate the love that they had for the Lord and the love that they had for each other. And as a part of that meal, they would partake of the bread and the wine of the Lord's table. The problem was that the selfish, non-Christian, ungodly culture in the city of Corinth had crept into the church. And when they came together to eat and to feast, they became very discriminatory. They were jockeying for the best position at the table. In that culture, the closer that you sat to the host of the home, the more important you were. So communion had become a status thing for these people. Some of them were, were going ahead and they were eating and they weren't waiting for other people. And, and some people weren't getting any food at all. I mean, it was a church that was divided relationally. Now imagine that, uh, that we have a meal here after uh, a service one Sunday morning, as we often do. There's a bit of a process and a pattern to how that works, right? Everybody brings something to share, and it's all set out on the table, and we kind of all wait patiently, and then uh, somebody prays for the meal, and then I, of course, get to eat first. No, I don't get to eat first. That's, that's a joke. But imagine if we came to, the, to, to this meal, and you got this little you know, group of people, and they're going ahead, and they're eating, and, and all the food's not set out yet, and this group, they're, they're budging in line. They're trying to get ahead. That's the picture of... of what we think was happening in this church in Corinth. So I think that the, the point here is that you should come to the communion table humbly aware of your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have a problem, if you have some sort of conflict with another brother or sister here at church, then you need to go to that person and resolve that issue before you partake of these elements. There, there should be no relational strife at this table. We are communing with each other. There, there's no room 
to look down at those that you're taking communion with. There's a really uh, fantastic story of a place called the Talbot House. Uh, during World War II, in a British section of the Western Front, just a few miles from the front lines, there was this meeting place for soldiers called the Talbot House. It was a, a place where they gathered and met uh, before they went up to the, to the trenches on the front line or when they were returning from the trenches. And in the upper loft of this house, they served communion. It really was an upper room, and for a lot of these soldiers, it, it really was uh, a last supper. And over the door of the, the room were the words, Abandon all rank, you who enter here. There's no rank here. We're, we're one. We're, we're brothers. And in a lot of ways, the sign over the communion table says the same thing. We are one. We're gathered around the gospel as sinners who've been forgiven by God. So what about you? Is there some kind of relational conflict that you have with another member of this church, the gospel, that good news of Jesus, urges you to take care of that before you come to this table. And that brings us to the third purpose of communion. The third purpose is anticipation. We're to remember the Lord's return. Notice what Paul says here in verse 26. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do you do? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's an anticipation of the Lord's return when we celebrate communion. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, we, we have this picture of this great banquet in which we will celebrate and feast with Jesus. Remember when you were a kid and you had a bunch of people over to your house for dinner, maybe around holidays, maybe, maybe this was just the case at, at Christmas time. If you have a bunch of people over and there's a bunch of kids at your house, there's usually a kid's table, right? Kids have to sit over here. And it was always a really big deal. It was always a really great moment when you were finally able and old enough to sit at the grown-up table. Well, when we gather every month to partake of this meal, in a way, it's like we're sitting at the kid's table. And we are preparing and we are getting ready for the day when we're going to sit at that big table in the New Jerusalem in heaven. I love what Dr. Russell Moore says about this. He's a, a Christian author. He says, as we gather around his table, he announces to us victory, pointing us to the day when we will eat at a table spread for us in the presence of our enemies. In this sense, the Lord's Supper is the antithesis of an ongoing sacrifice of Christ, which is what some denominations think. It is instead the sign of, that the sacrifice has been accepted once for all and that we now share in the spoils of a crucifixion that crushed the serpent's head. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a great picture? That when we partake of these elements, we are reminded this is not the end of the story. Jesus is returning. That one day the, the little bit of pain, the little bit of sorrow that I'm experiencing in my life, it's all going to be dealt with. Jesus is going to come and make things right. And so there should be an anticipation in us when we partake of these elements. We're going to come to this table here in just a couple of minutes, and we're going to partake, and we're going to remember, and we're going to anticipate. We're going to be empowered by God. And so the, the question is, how should we come to the table? That's the second question that I want to ask. And I think that there are two attitudes that every person should have when we come to the communion table. How should we come to this table? Here's the first way. We should come repentantly. Repentantly. There's absolutely no room 
for us to come to this table in arrogance or in self-sufficiency, thinking that we don't really need what this table represents. No, we should come with an attitude of repentance, acknowledging our sin before God. And I think this is what Paul means here when he tells people not to come to the table in an unworthy manner. Paul gets very, very serious here. Notice what he says in verse 27. He says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. By the way, he doesn't mean they're taking a nap. He means they died. He says, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Man, Paul is, is pretty clear here that there are some serious ramifications to partaking of these elements in an unworthy manner. That's why he tells us that we need to discern, we need to examine ourselves. Now, if you grew up in a similar Christian context and culture that I did, then you probably understand that passage that I just read to mean this. Um, I sinned a whole lot this past week, and so that means that I better pass on the communion elements this time around because I don't want God to zap me. That's how I grew up understanding this particular passage. Is that what this means? Is that what Paul is talking about here? Well, the word that he uses, the word examine or the word discern, is the same word for passing a test. So what is, what is the Lord, what is God testing us on? Is it on how well we've behaved during the week? Is he testing us on whether we deserve his grace? Or could it be that he's testing us on our understanding of what he did for us? Listen, the, the test isn't whether we deserve to participate in communion. Do any of us here this morning deserve to come to this table and participate? No, absolutely not. None of us do. That's the whole point. We come to this table understanding that we aren't worthy. We come with a repentant attitude. The only requirement to be worthy to partake of these elements is to realize that you aren't worthy. That's what Paul means when he says to examine yourself, to, to discern. He's saying, do you really get this? Are you coming with an arrogant attitude? Are you being arrogant toward another brother or sister in Christ? He says, change your attitude. Go, make things right with them, and then you'll be worthy to participate. The reason that Paul says that some of them were getting sick and dying is because they were living on the limited resources of their own flesh. It's not like God is saying, hey, you sinned a lot this week, and, so, and, and, and you took communion, so now I'm going to have to judge you. Now I'm going to have to zap you. No, that, that's not what he's saying. These Corinthians had come with the wrong attitude. They came arrogantly. They came self-sufficiently, and we are to come repentantly. So listen, in a, in a few moments, when we come to this table and those elements are passed out and you have a few moments to pray, don't do what I used to do when I was a kid. I was scared to death that God was going to judge me for this. Don't spend that time nervously trying to recall and repent of every single sin that you've committed of this past week. Thinking if you, if you forget what you did last Tuesday night, 
that God is going to judge you. Who does that make communion all about? Does that make it about God or does that make it about you? Makes it all about you. Instead, focus and spend that time thanking God that the blood of His Son Jesus has covered all of the sins that you are guilty of this past week. The way that you came to God for salvation is the same way that you were to come to this table here in just a couple of minutes, repentantly and humbly. There's a reverence to how we are to come. The second way that we need to come to this table, though, is rejoicing. We need to come rejoicing. Now, I don't think that we have a problem coming to this table reverently. I think we've got that down pretty well. It seems like in a lot of churches, uh, the Lord's Supper is is characterized by this uh, overly reverential uh, funeral atmosphere. Sometimes I think that we think the point of communion is to kind of scrunch up our face and feel really, really bad for what Jesus had to do for us. Listen, when, when we come, we should rejoice. We should be happy. We should celebrate. Now, it's a reverential celebration, but nonetheless, it is a celebration because we are celebrating that we have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. We look back on what Jesus has done for us, and we look ahead at what Jesus is going to do for us. Actually, the word Eucharist is simply a Greek word that means gratitude or grace. And so when we come, we are grateful. We're thankful for God's grace in our lives. A pastor friend of mine one time said that it seems inappropriate to remember Jesus' death by jumping up and down. But it also seems inappropriate to be totally morose and sad. Remember the the big idea of this sermon? Communion reminds us of and empowers us in the gospel. And so we can come to this table and we can be empowered to live this life with joy because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for us. When we take communion, we are showing the world that the gospel has changed our life because of of what Christ has done. And this table reminds us that that we're hungry people. There's a spiritual hunger in our lives. And we've rejected what the world says we need to satisfy that hunger. And instead, we've come to this table and we wait for God to feed us until we are spiritually hungry no more. I'll close with this story and then we're going to come and partake. In the Lord of the Rings novels, not the movies, but in the books, there's a scene where Pippin, one of the main characters, is minutes away from death. Uh, He's sure that he's going to die because there's all these armies coming in to besiege him in the city that he's in. But at the very last minute, off in the distance, he hears a horn blowing. I think it's the horns of of Rohan or something. And when he hears the horns, it turns out that, that there's these knights that ride into the city and they rescue him. They save all the people inside the city, including Pippin. And we're told in the book that for the rest of his life, Pippin could never hear a horn off in the distance without getting emotional, without breaking into tears. Because that horn was a physical and an audible reminder of his salvation. And when he heard that horn off in the distance, he relived his salvation. Connected him to the past, he remembered the sacrifices of the people who died to save him. And no matter how grumpy he was or how sad he was, he couldn't stay that way when he heard a horn off in the distance. This communion table... It's like that for us. This is our horn in the distance. It connects us to our salvation. 
It reminds us of the one who sacrificed and died to save us. And it will change your life right now because it will infuse your life with the knowledge that every single second that you now live is an act of grace. So Father, now I pray that as we come to this table and we live out, we act out what we've just heard, I pray, Father, that we would remember and that we would rejoice and that we would be empowered to live for you in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. And I pray, God, that we would anticipate your return. That whatever's going on in our lives right now, I pray, Lord, that you would remind us that that in these elements, that you are present with us, that you love us, that you care for us so very much. So God, we're we're grateful and thankful for what this table represents in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.